There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombach, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Lauren Bailey, the co-founder and CEO of Upward Projects, the proprietors of the great concepts you know, like Postinos, Joyride Tacos, Windsor, and Federal Pizza. We had an awesome conversation that covered how she got started in the restaurant business, the role that mindset plays in her daily life, her thoughts on competing with other restaurateurs, being a female CEO in an industry which is predominantly male, and finally, her advice to would-be restaurant owners. Please like the show, tell a friend, share us on social media. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Miner. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Lauren Bailey, CEO and co-founder of Upward Projects. Welcome. Hello. Awesome to have you. Centauri, did you know this should be good. you can get $5 glasses of wine and $5 pitchers of beer at, at Postinos? Centauri Miner did know this. Okay. He doesn't drink. I don't know how he would know that. I, how, how on earth would I ever have heard about this? It's a, it's a great deal. I thought you said you knew Centauri, Lauren. <laughs> so Postinos, Federal Pizza, Joyride Tacos, Windsor and Churn, all part of the family of restaurants. Those are all awesome. How is business? It's great. It's a great time to be alive and in the restaurant biz, counter to what most people say and think. I think it's a, a time right now, It's uh, someone told me the other day, it's a, the restaurant world right now is a group of winners and losers. There's not a lot in the middle um, because there's so many people in the game right now that um, you know we've had to elevate what you're doing on every level. Um, so it's exciting because I think for us, we look at that as an extreme challenge. You have to nail it on every level. You can no longer, you know, if you think about go back to even 10 years ago, there was no Yelp, nothing. I mean, you could have a pretty crappy restaurant and get away with it for a pretty significant amount of time because it would take people a long time to talk to each other and say, man, I went to this place and it wasn't good and it was really word of mouth, where now you open up your phone and search for a restaurant and you can instantly see a multitude of reviews and you can see who's reviewing it, when, what they like, what yeah. they didn't like. In addition, restaurateurs are getting you know, feedback every moment. So it's it's kind of just moved things uh, forward quite quickly. Can you tell us a little bit, just from some level settings, some, the personalities of each of those restaurants? So they're all distinct, very different. So who's in them? What do they do? I'm very impressed that you did not ask me which one was my favorite. Oh. So high five for that. Cause so it's that like, that's it's, actually the next question. <laughs> dang it. No, um, it'd be like picking a favorite child. Really, which I hear that Because exists, they all but... are like, they've all been born in their own way. They've all evolved in their own way. They totally have their own personalities. And we love that. I think that's one of the best things that we do um, is, is let them be what they want to be. And we lovingly, Craig and I often say we have shiny object syndrome because we'll find the cool building and then the building sort of tells us what it wants to be and it evolves just like a child does. And so you could never pick. I have certain favorite spaces that I like, but in terms of the actual restaurants, I couldn't tell you. Um, well, we'll start with Postino. I think that what's unique about that is it it's kind of hits a lot of different veins of the type of people who go there, the different ways that people use it. They will come and um, have a dinner or they'll just come for a glass of wine. They'll meet girlfriends for an appetizer. They'll come for dessert. They'll, any, there's a million. They'll come sit on a laptop and work. 
There's a lot of different ways to experience it. Um, I also think that you can come in there in a, in a ball gown and you could come in there in flip-flops. And we've really tried to stay really true to that and keep the things that you experience within the restaurant in that vein. It can't be too fancy. It can't be too casual. And there's kind of a small space that we like everything to go in um, with the artwork, the design, the way the plates are, the way our servers dress. Um, everything is kind of communicating that story of kind of flexibility in a way. Um, and then the wine piece too, I think there's also a, a lot of pull at times to be really snobby about wine or, or us to educate you on what you're drinking and tell you what you don't know and there, that there's value in that. We've kind of taken the opposite approach where um, we wanted to do that, but in a way that was comfortable and fun. And um, so that's a big part of our training programs are, you know, Brent is a, he's brilliant. He just passed his advanced course. Um, so he has one more test to take to become a master SOM. And if you know, there's only 200 and something of them in the world. Didn't know that. He came in, um, he passed the first time around. He, very few people ever do that. Um, I was at a, at this, touring this landlord with this landlord in Denver when I found out and, uh, I literally like sat on the floor and started crying and cause he calls me and he's like, he's like, Lauren, he's like, Hey, and in his voice, I could, I was like, okay, Oh God, I'm like, have a speech ready. I'm like, don't worry. No one passes it the first time. And I start <laughs> launching into the speech and he's like, I passed. And I screamed and started crying. And this poor landlord was like, you're crazy straight up. It was a big deal. But, you know, taking that kind of knowledge and power that he has and this incredible ability to pick these wines and he has unbelievable relationships with these winemakers and then bringing that to the restaurant and then the even tougher pieces uh, to train our staff to deliver that message in, in a really great way that is really aligned with what we're trying to do and, and show people really great wine. So actually, Jenny, you may have seen she's doing, a, I think, a beer tasting today with our staff. So training is really important for us. Um, and that's a huge piece of that culture of that specific brand, Postino side. Um, Windsor is like our punk rock kid that is like never doing what you tell it to do and just <laughs> really prides itself on um, kind of drawing outside the lines. And we love that about it. We put in the floor question authority, which certainly has come back to bite Craig and I in the butt a few times of people being <laughs> like, hey. Will do. <laughs> did put that in the you floor told us. here. Um, but we love, it's a scratch kitchen and, um, we make all our own ice cream on site there. Um, what does scratch kitchen mean? No, nothing in like, like Applebee's for instance, you, they get their food delivered. It's all frozen in a, in a bag or a box and they're basically reheating things. That's why I love it so much at Applebee's. <laughs> it's so consistent. <laughs> it's so true. That's why they do it. Um, but everything we make from scratch. So every dressing, every marinade, everything, there's nothing that comes into the restaurant. That's the case with all of our restaurants, but, um, in that one in particular is is a is a bigger challenge because the menu's bigger and we're making ice cream um you know to basically every day because it's so small our storage space so nice um and that one too i think is really a great meeting spot for uh the community and it's fun as well because it's got a big bar component obviously we put a big bar in the middle of the restaurant but then we put this really great nostalgic candy shop on the side so you see this juxtaposition of like families and um people hanging out for happy hour and we love that too um and then joyride is is a Cool, coastal, come in flip-flops, eat some really great, clean Mexican food, tortillas made to order for you. Um, we never wanted to have steaming plates of rice and beans there, so um, we, we approached that food program differently. We also wanted it to be really great, fresh-squeezed juices and a really fun place to be and come have some beers or some margaritas with friends and share some food and high-fives. Um, and then Federal Pizza, that concept was derived out of the fact that it was an old bank and really that was the birthplace of that was we thought it would be really cool if you could drive through a drive through and pick up a, a legitimately great wood fired pizza and a growler of beer or a, um, a bottle of wine in a drive through 
And so that was really kind of born from that theory. And it's a good uh, idea. It's yeah. a great idea. <laughs> and then just having this building that you're in right now that's also Federal's in is an Al Beetle building. So it was called, uh, it was built and designed for First Federal Savings and Loan Bank. Um, and so we really loved that. And we felt we loved mid-century architecture as a group. So we not only to have a restaurant in an albedo building, but... Is that a person? Is that the architect? Yes. Sorry. Not at all. <laughs> I'm just not very... He's a famous mid-century Arizona architect that's done some of the most um, special buildings here in town, and they're really, I think, some of the crown jewels of the city and hopefully don't get torn down. But um, we were really excited about that, and that's why that concept kind of has um, a, a definite tinge with the mid-century design and kind of elements to it, so... Oh, that's that one, and it's um, again really scratch kitchen. And MJ Co uh, helped us develop that pizza recipe. We went through a long, arduous process because um, I'm sure you've had Italian, you know, um, style pizzas like a that they're really legitimately, and you get them if you put them in a box and take them home, they're kind of like watery mess, or you pick it up, and all the we call it the waterfall effect, all the toppings fall off. Yeah, so when we were developing this recipe, we actually ate, ate it cold, we ate it one day old, we ate it right out hot out of the oven, we ate it if it was um, sitting at the table for 10 minutes. And that dough was really designed to, to travel and to do a lot of things because we knew we had the, the drive through and it had to, it couldn't just be good. I mean, you can take pretty much any pizza, it's out of an oven is pretty good with melty cheese, but we need it to be good cold, it needed to be good reheated, it needed to be good getting it home. Um, so that was a big part of that, oh. too. Yeah. Our pizza needs to be resilient. Yes. That's a really good way to put it. I feel like we should put that on the box. Go, by all means. I'll give you credit. Yes. This George guy said our pizza needs to be resilient. Or how about our pizza is resilient? Okay, great. Yeah. Let's go for it. Our pizza has grit. Our pizza Ooh, has that's grit. That's even better. You need to be on the marketing team. Maybe. I mean, this is, this like is a pretty cool office. I, I, I could kind of sit right over there. <laughs> I heard there was a beer tasting going on. The marketing department is the most fun part of the office. They have their own disco ball. They asked me, okay. can we buy this disco ball? And it's like 120 bucks. And I'm like, I think that's the best way to spend 120 bucks that we yes. can think of. What do they do with the disco ball? Are there more than one? They spend it all the time. And then when something exciting happens or they have a good idea or they nail it, Tori just got it set up with a light. So before it didn't have a light on it. Now it's like fully huh. deployed. That's awesome. So we got, we got wine bar. We got pizza. We got... Mexican, we've got ice cream, Indian cuisine is next. I do love Indian food, but I don't know how to cook that or even, yeah, no. <laughs> so take us back to the beginning. Okay. Um, I probably ought to know from the research I should have done what your Postino's, I think that that was your first. So, well, Craig and Chris DeMarco, my business partners, actually opened the first one in Arcadia, and we met... I think two, a year and a half, two years after the first one opened. It's kind of a funny story I'll share quickly. But um, so I had been working on the East Coast and was put myself through school working in restaurants here in Phoenix and then I was going to go to grad school. And I remember the night I was bartending and I was going to have way more debt and going to art school, getting more art degrees. Mm. My mom was like, what are you going to do with these things? But anyway. Don't um, worry about it, mom. Yeah, it all worked out in the end. But um Anyway, so one night I was working and I, I said, oh, I could do this. This isn't this hard. Like, look at these people. They're not that sharp. You know, I could open my own restaurant. So I saved $30,000 that summer and came back to Phoenix. And a couple of my friends worked at Pusino Arcadia. And um, I was probably, I was like, I could probably open two restaurants for this, you know. Clearly not the case. And as I was finding that out, um, Craig was had these original tables that he had in Postino, and he was getting rid of them for new, way better ones. And uh, I said, hey, I want to buy those tables from you. And he's like, well, what are you do trying to do? And I was like, I'm going to open my own restaurant. 
And he said, well, hang on a second. What, you know, what's all that about? So even us working together, we kind of realized early on that we had a strong sense of synergy and that um, we shared really sincere core values around how we wanted to do business with a people-focused company first. And um, so we ended up partnering up um, to open Postino Central together and uh, just hustled and made it happen and really tied some shoestrings together. I mean, um, we the, it was actually the old cat's deli, and they literally locked the door and said, here you go. And I mean, there was food in the refrigerators, everything. Craig's like, oh, man, this is going to take so much money to get this thing cleared out. And I was like, I'll sell it on Craigslist. So I put this note, and a lot of it was total garbage. So I put this note, this ad up there that said, free stuff, you haul it. And like 150 people show up there and my husband was like, oh my God, I mean, what are we doing? And they came in there fighting over stuff. I ended up selling it, clearing the whole place out. We bought all the equipment used. I mean, it was really, really set the tone for even today, how we operate um, in terms of resources and valuing innovation that comes from um, not just throwing money at problems. And so um, shortly thereafter, we co-founded Upward Projects um, together, and then we realized that we really had this great working relationship, and we shortly thereafter did Windsor, walked across the street, realized that that was a red brick building, um, and got pretty excited about it because it was really ugly. You would not have known that something, if you ever drove by there, it had this huge, ugly blue awning on the front and um, like 85 coats of white paint on it, and uh, it was pretty rough. And so... Um, it kind of just went on from there and any money we made in the deal that we were in we rolled right into the next one and um you know had some friends and family help us from time to time but i think that that necessity was the mother of the invention for us of how to do cool stuff and we never even had the money to hire designers so we all you know chris craig's wife and i really love that part of things and him too we just kind of rub sticks together and come up with cool ideas you know nice and you guys are uh, based here, but you have projects in other markets, right? I've, I've seen the, the Postino in Denver. Yeah, right? we have one there, and it's in an old bookbinding building. So that's a real cornerstone to what we do. We try to find these buildings that kind of had a previous life, and, and we're looking to do something different with them, and they have a story, and we believe it's going to sound a little woo-woo-y, but we believe that they have a different vibration kind of and have this sort of really great feeling, and um, people really resonate with that. So do the spaces drive your concepts, would you say? 100%, which is oh. kind of backwards about how a lot of people, restaurateurs, will say, like, you know, I've got this great idea for this pizzeria, and now I need to go find real estate. We don't do that. Um, as we've opened more Postinos, I think we have, like, we've, but they, it honestly hasn't been this big strategic plan of, a, you know, we want to open these a million of these things. It's kind of been dictated by the real estate for sure. Hmm. And then specifically with the Indies, we call them like all the federal pizza and joyride. Those were real estate driven 100%. And even the concepts, like I mentioned with federal, it wasn't that we were like, well, we want to put this certain thing in there. Hmm. Got it. So it's been an unbroken boulevard of green lights up until this point. Just smooth sailing. <laughs> but... That's uh, Alec Baldwin on Jerry Seinfeld. It's kind of funny. That quote's entire, you don't think that was funny? It was okay. Okay. But let's, <laughs> let's, talk about, let's talk about something negative. Let's talk about when it wasn't going right or one of the toughest times or some of the tougher times you guys have, have had. It's just different. I think, you know, I was having this conversation actually with Aaron Chamberlain and um, all along the way there's challenges. You know, I think if it was easy, everyone would do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, but they're different. And as you grow, um, you know, when we had one restaurant, we had a, we had mostly a cash flow problem and you know, how are we going to get to the second one? And we didn't know what we didn't know. And then you have two and it's kind of like, how do you split your time? And every time we open a restaurant and as t more time goes by, I think we have 626 employees now. 
It's a lot. Yeah, so just kind of the pivoting has always created, I don't even think of them as problems. I think that's a definitive shift that you have to make. If you're going to wake up every morning and look at, particularly in the restaurant business, that there's tons of problems. Oh my God, what am I going to do? You're destined for a terrible, unhappy life because, and I use this with our team all the time, it's like you're in the ocean and the waves are never going to stop coming. Mm. You have a choice that you're either just going to let the waves slam you in the face and feel really sorry for yourself and maybe drown and can't get out of it and like, oh, or you're going to get a surfboard and be pumped at those waves and just look at them as really awesome opportunities to shift. And I make that sound probably shinier than I certainly feel on some days. Um, like today has been a tough day, like I mentioned when you guys got here. But um, I think keeping that perspective of I know these waves are coming and it's just a it's it's kind of a, a thought process of you're either growth minded or you're kind of of the mindset of things are happening to you. And I believe 100 percent that that is a choice. And if you have a growth mindset, you're kind of thinking of these waves or, or opportunities. We kind of can say problems um, as a, a way to shift and something to learn and that they're presenting themselves to you because uh, there's a shift needed. And in my experience, if you if you if you if you look at them only like that or, or you even like kind of squelch them down and pretend they don't exist, it's just it's, a, it's not a good way to live. And mm-hmm. it's certainly not a good way to solve the problem. And mm-hmm. I think the other piece and component for us has been the amazing amount of people that have been willing to help us in this community and outside of it, not only within the restaurant business, but all over the city. When we've raised our hand and there's been something that we're like, man, we don't know how to solve this, it is remarkable. I think Phoenix, one of the, my favorite things about it is the sense of collaboration that this town has and the willingness of, of people to help each other. It is so special and it's been um a cornerstone to what we've done here so as you um just talk about that a little bit more what was the most eye-opening piece so your background is not as a restaurateur but so when you got into it and since you've been in it what has been something that completely surprised you about this work you know i was reading this article the other day about this guy who um i don't remember what he did it was like data entry or something and he was telling the story about how he lost basically his whole life savings and everything trying to open a restaurant and he'd never worked in a restaurant before that and um it was really sad story and i it was again it was a kind of this sense of perspective that i don't even know someone had posted it on facebook that i knew and i happened to read this article it was pretty long and i was having one of those days when i was feeling really sorry for myself like this is hard i don't know how i don't have the answer or whatever and i was so grateful that i read that article because this business is super tough and in that moment i had this kind of like revelation that the fact that we have 13 profitable restaurants that are doing well is like I mean it's a huge blessing you know I do think that there's an incredible value in working in the restaurant business before you do it Um, because it is complex I think people have a tendency to romanticize it and think like oh this will be fun it'll be like I'm out to dinner all the time or I'm at a bar with my friends and it's certainly not that um and it's I don't think they realize it's 365 days a year it's 24 7 I mean it's uh it'll chew you up and spit you out and I, I, that's why I think that perspective piece of kind of, and Craig always taught me this. It was like, you know, if you can keep that perspective of, of like, we're going to survive, we're not having a splat moment, just one foot in front of the other in those days and, and keeping that is, is super important. What should the, for anyone who might be interested in opening up a restaurant or uh, looking into that space, talk to us a little bit about the business size of what, what makes you all successful and what makes another restaurant not. So what are the, is it the, uh, the, the food offerings is it the location yeah. is it the price like what what is the not secret sauce but what are you focusing I'll tell you on this to make is the answer to that in the quote is it's hard to beat someone who never gives up huh. and that is the essence of what we do because you you 
if, if I could tell you, even today, what I opened up my email and what was going on, if someone has a nut allergy and we served them nuts on accident, mm. the, um, the, this is, um, these are real things that have happened in the last week. I'm sure The water is. heater went down at Postino East, and on a, of course, on a Sunday at, uh, at brunch when we're full and we have no hot water, and they can't get us one until, you know, Tuesday at noon, and then Tori somehow makes it happen. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. And I think uh, the advice I would give you is to go work in a restaurant and find out what it's really, really like. Because mm. I think, again, people don't realize that it's, it's, it's incredibly fulfilling and awesome in so many ways if you're wired like that for kind of an ass-kicking every day. <laughs> um, so but, if you're into that. Yeah, it, it, you have to be. And then, it, but it's also a challenge. And I think if you, it's all about mental strength, you know. So if you can't give up every day, and I heard another someone else say something. It was like restaurant concepts don't get tired. Restaurant owners get tired, and there it's a, it's there's totally a difference there. You know, and it is. It's hard, and you have to kind of you can't give up. You're gonna get waves, and then guarantee when one thing happens, five more are gonna come right behind it. It's like the universe just knows it's messing with you to test you and see what your mental strength is to, to navigate it. Everybody pile on. <laughs> Did, do you think that you always had that mindset or is that something you developed because of the restaurant business? I had business no idea. Or? If I thought if I had one restaurant that my mom would stop asking me what was I going to do with my right. life. And there is no scenario where Come I on, thought mom. you guys would ever even want to come in here and set up your microphone and want to hear my story. There's, I just never did. And I think... That being said, I also feel like I was born to do this, and I feel really great about it, but I, I certainly, every day I'm learning things, and I'm really committed in my life to, to being a student of life always. I think there's always something to learn, there's always something to be better about, there's always something never to give up, make it better, almost to a fault. I have to go to therapy every week, so I don't take this to an extreme, and I, you know, lose my mind. Yeah. But. Well, I, I certainly think that you're right, and... This is, by the way, uh, the year anniversary of the podcast. So, wow! <gasps> pretty exciting. Can I dual high five. Oh, for sure. Oh. Nice. So this is number this is number fifty six, which equals the number of weeks in the year. That's that's not correct. <laughs> yes, I, I know. <laughs> we were just I went to let you I went to on with that. <laughs> but certainly, one of the themes that I, I think that a lot of our guests have talked about is that mindset of. You're not going to be able to control what happens to you. All that you really have control over is how you respond to those yep. things. So, and talking about grit, I think that just like your pizza, you certainly need to have grit too. Like you were saying, restaurant concepts don't fail. Restaurant owners get tired, whatever it was. Yeah. So, Warren, um, I so I grew up here, and so I've been able to see the evolution of the the Phoenix restaurant scene. What what do you think we look like as we um, kind of judge ourselves nationally um, and it seems like there's been a renaissance here in Arizona what's been that what's been driving that I 100% think there's been a renaissance but I think that across the board nationally I okay. think that there's more focus on food than ever before um, people are more educated about food they have better palates I remember five or six years ago I put burrata on the menu at Postino and people had no idea what it was we couldn't sell what it what is this yeah and we would lie and be like this is what it technically is a form of mozzarella but we would say it's mozzarella and this blew my mind especially coming from you know living in New York and and being really aware of this um, but just the span of time that we've come through and, and the interest level that people have in general for food is, is really spurred this on the thing about Arizona and particularly Phoenix I think is really special is again the city in this town is really committed you have some stakeholders in, in this town that are really committed to moving the needle here and I think that there's a there's a really deep connection amongst all of us, I don't think a lot of people even know this, that we're 
you know, we're very close with Aaron and Justin Beckett and Sam Fox, and we're all just kind of really trying to move the needle forward because mm -hmm. we know that you're not going to eat in our restaurant seven days a week, and I just want you to go to Aaron's restaurant or Sam's restaurant before you go to Applebee's. And I think that that has driven a lot of that, and the city is so friendly when it comes to promoting these businesses with um, in, the, in the development side with adaptive reuse. Um, you know, really started with Phil Gordon and then into Greg Stanton of valuing, protecting these buildings, um, creating space for people and, and, and options for them to benefit by, by doing that. Um, and then there's also been an insurgence of capital where there wasn't there before, and that's also nationally, and I also think with Phoenix, people are more willing to invest in restaurants than ever before. Um, and that's just across the board. So I think you're seeing a lot of private investment coming through our industry, as well as um, as, as well as the kind of banks and, and bigger op opportunities with that too. So that's helping fuel it too. You know, we get this question all the time, is, is it oversaturated? Mm. Um, I don't, I know that there's certain data points that would say yes it is, but again, like I said early on in, in the podcast, that this is a game of winners and losers. There's not a lot in the middle. Because again, your visibility is so high and moving so fast. But also the interesting <coughs> piece is that um, restaurant spending eclipsed grocery store spending for the first time in history in 2016. Oh, that's wow. interesting. Yeah. So, and if you think really? about it personally, you're probably if you really think about it, you're probably eating out more than you ever. Yeah, have. I don't go grocery. I never go grocery. Right. Shopping. So you're getting Uber Eats. You're going <laughs> yeah. out to eat. Um, and so, in one hand, yes, I think there's a lot of restaurants, but I also think people are, there's a lot of options. If you think about fast food, even five years ago, there were your normal players, like Burger King, whatever. And maybe there was like Chipotle, it was like groundbreaking, right? Because it was slightly healthy and actually tasted good and you could get it fast. Well, now you have 15 or 20 options that are in that vein of where you're going to go. And that market share that they're taking from Burger Kings and McDonald's in the world, it's painful. I'm sure you've read articles. These guys are freaking out. They should be. They have a shitty product, you know? This is really basic, and I think that's where the bar is just constantly raising, so you're seeing reaction to that, and these entrepreneurs coming around like, hey, I have a better way to do it. I wanna feed people, and I'm gonna feed them better, faster, and a better environment. In McDonald's, you're asleep at the wheel. Now you're finally kind of waking up because these people are getting traction, right? And I think there's also a, a way more awareness around um, local spending and supporting local mm -hmm. business owners and small business owners than there ever has been before. And it just feels good to people. You don't feel good when you're going to giving McDonald's money. I'm sorry, McDonald's people. Someone probably gonna listen to this at some point, but I mean, you're not stoked to like give McDonald's your nine dollars. You know, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of McDonald's. Yeah, that's a lot of McDonald's. Can you? Um, is, I haven't been there. In years. I, mean, <laughs> I just imagine how much it is. Since we have uh, listeners that are outside of the valley, I'd love to get your perspective on if you're a foodie. What are some other pockets outside of? LA, New York, San Francisco of just good cluster of restaurants. Portland, Seattle. I would even prefer to, I love New York. It's my favorite city in the world. But um, the gateway to entry there is so big with rent that um, and other issues And San Francisco's in the same boat. With the, I was at this conference. Um, there was a whole round table of the issues that they have with so much legislation and, um, and all these laws that they pass around employment that the it's, it, it's too hard to enter. So you can't be somebody that if you're if you're an up and coming chef and you're going to take a risk and do that you, you're not getting into Manhattan you're barely getting into Brooklyn now I mean Brooklyn was really started to become this insurgence of really cool great innovative concepts but even that's getting priced out right because the rents are driving them out and so I think you're seeing these these what we typically call B markets um, their gateway to entry is lower so you'll take a chef that will that's been working in New York for a long time and then they're going to leave and go to another city. Because the same thing's happening with, with residential, I think, too. 
you to live in New York now, I mean, you have to make 250 grand to live not in a total shithole. And it's just changing really the culture of what's happening in those cities. And I've been going there for 15 years and I've, my, my best friend still lives there and I've watched, it's getting really vanilla, you know, because only people who can afford those rents are chains. So you're seeing kind of cool stuff happening. I mean, Austin's a great example. Texas is super business friendly. Um, all the cities in Houston, we are opening a restaurant there. It's remarkable what these guys are doing because they're staying really focused on being really welcoming to entrepreneurs and in up and coming chefs and people who do that. I think it's, it's so critical. Nice. One of my questions was whether or not you felt like you were in competition with some of the other restaurateurs here in town, but it sounds like it's more cooperative than anything else. It is and it isn't. I mean, like I said, I think that we're all trying to kick ass and it's hard business, but I think there's, I have an abundance philosophy in my life in general. Mm -hmm. And I just, it's, I'd have to really try to think in a scarcity mentality of like, okay, you know, there's only so many seats to go around and everybody's asked us because we kind of started here and then 7th Street wasn't even a thing when we were operating and they were like, oh, you know, Sam's opened a restaurant. We've only gotten busier. And arguably, there's more seats than there ever have been. Yeah. But um, I think you have to execute. So you, we've also heard the stories of people who, the soldiers who fall. And, uh, you know, I don't, there's a, probably lots of reasons why that happens. But um, you got to execute. you got to pick great real estate. you got to go into it with the right model. Your team, I mean, I, it cannot be understated how important your team is. Because... I don't care how good of an idea and great of a menu that you wrote in the beginning. And maybe that if you're a chef and you can you can create this dish that is so mind-blowingly delicious, if your team can't recreate that dish over and over and over again like you made it, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. So we have a total problem with um, with, with the, our employee base. That's what we're competing. If, if I would tell you what are we competing for, it's people. Top talent. 100%. We're not competing well, for guests necessarily. Talent. Yeah. Well, 100%. So you um, you touched on this at the beginning, but I'd love to hear how much of technology, or rather customers, have driven your your concepts and what you're doing. Because now it's in real time. It's not mm-hmm. weeks or months. It's you know what your customers are thinking. How much of that drives what you do in each of these restaurants? It's scary, you guys, about the data that you can get. I don't even know all of it, but I've seen some of the things like Buxton's doing, and they're tracking your credit cards. I saw this presentation with Bank of America. They're the largest issuer of credit cards in the world. And they take all of that data of not only from their debit cards, but from their credit cards that they issue. And they assign you a, you have a profile. There's 260 different profiles. Based on your spending, they will call you a certain something. And then they've been able to then tie that The to, consumer has a profile. Yes, that you don't even know about. Based on your spending. Then once they tag you with that, they are, um, your phone when it has location services on it when you're on social media. Now not only does it know what type of person you are, it knows where you live and where you travel and where you're going. So restaurant people, anything can really find out. If you're Lululemon, you know where your customers are, how much money those customers spend and where they live. So it becomes very easy to know where to put a store. It's creepy. Big data following us around. It totally is. But, you know, we've never done that. We've And Craig and I laugh about this because we've kind of done it the old school way of, of, this is a really cool building. And this, you know, these people seem like they have really great pride of ownership in these neighborhoods. Like, this is cool. And we're sitting in Postino Central watching Circle K get robbed. You know, this really happened. And I was like, dude, he's like, Lauren, it's urban. You know, so would the data have said that that was a site? I don't know. <laughs> so I think in someone who I really respect told me once that Lauren, real estate is half science and half art. And I 100% believe that. The problem is the science is getting so compelling and influential with people that it's impacting the art of, I think, everything we're doing. That's probably true. Yeah. 
I always love talking about art and science, and you can apply that to, to right. any, any industry. Yeah. Look at 23andMe. I mean, I just did it, and I'm like, this was kind of cool, but like, where did that go? And like, where's the data going? And they've got to be to ask you if you could harvest it or whatever, but do you really want to, should you really know that you're probably hmm. going to get late onset Alzheimer's? I don't know. Right, right. Dun, dun, dun. I know. It's just too much information out there, Centauri. Sometimes it's too much for my brain to process. Um, do you, well, I, I wrote this question down like five different ways. Being a female CEO, is that common in the, in the restaurant business? Is that something you think about? Is it a responsibility more so than? Um, it is not common in our business. And certainly I have a really good friend who told me the other day, has one of the best restaurant companies in the country. It's called Barteca. And he said to me, Lauren, you're the only female founder of full-service restaurants that I can think of. I'm Ooh. sure there's someone, like, of larger scale. And half of me was like, awesome. Yeah. And the other half of me was like, shit. Fuck. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Odds not in your favor. Um, so naturally, I went to my therapist, and I was like, listen, you know, I think this is, again, the, the, the lens that you choose to look through of what you see. So in certain scenarios, something will happen, and then I will put that lens on of, like, I'm screwed as a female, and you'll start to see and feel people mm. treating you that way. And I think, again, that's a choice because if that narrative is sort of rolling in your brain, that's – it's like when you decide you're going to buy a car, and you're like, I'm going to buy a Honda, right? And you're on the road, and then all of a sudden, all you see are Hondas. Mm -hmm. right? This is a proven fact. So I had this revelation that if I'm worried all the time about – it, what are they thinking of me as a female leader? And rather than I need to be in constant execution mode at all time. If I'm spending energy and time wondering, is are you thinking if I should be in the seat as a female, then I'm out of execution mode. Right. And I do everything I possibly can at all times to stay in execution mode. And in my mind, it's like I think this is a total awesome time to be a female because you can have a choice of being a renegade and getting after it and just letting your work speak for itself. And I think every single day that goes by, this becomes less and less of a conversation. And I said to someone, we were I was going to this conference, I said, Lauren, will you be on this, this uh, panel about women in the restaurant business? And I said, you know, I'll do that. But what would be more meaningful to me would just to be on a regular panel. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I knew, you know, which ones were going to be the heavily attended ones. And I, and I encourage women to just, rather than focusing on, you know, getting in, in, a, in a space of, of like, oh, okay, well, let's talk about how hard it is, but just go kick ass and get yourself on those boards, get yourself in those at those meetings, raise your hand, and I think that is really where we're going to see a big shift. And, you know, I used to be a huge fan of Sheryl Sandberg, and actually I'll show you on my bucket list that says uh, I want to meet her, and I saw her speak um, at Gamage a couple of years ago, but Carla Harris opened for her that works for Morgan Stanley. And she blew me out of the water because it was like, look, if you want people to think about you a certain way, and this doesn't matter if it's a matter of male, female, purple, green, black, white, blue, there is a definitive way to get people to think about you as a human. And, and those things don't matter and you just need to get after it. Well, then Cheryl Sandberg gets up here and she's like, hi, I'm going to give you a ton of statistics that tell you how fucked you really are. And then what I think you should do is go get a circle of women in your city and lean in and talk about this, how screwed you are. And I'm like, I don't have time for this, man. I want to move forward. I want to like, I want to get stuff done. I want to be in execution mode and I'm going to focus on how to show people that I deserve a seat at that table. I'm going to find out whatever it takes to give me the courage to raise my friggin' hand. And that's what it's about. Not about like, you know, one in, one in 10 leaders in the restaurant business are, are women. Okay. Let's shift it. What's that got to do with me? Yeah, right. Nothing. Yar. <laughs> Is that really what Cheryl Sandberg talks about? I think that's, 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 I think that's, that's the concept of really disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, there's probably a little more meat on the bone than that, but yeah, for me, that's probably. what I heard. 
I got it. And I, I totally agree with you as well. The, 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 the lens that you see the world through is going to make all the difference in the world. If you think that you're fucked, then you're probably fucked. This is actually a, a proven fact. So the, not to delve off of your questions because they're amazing questions. They're really I, good, I, think, I feel they? compelled to share this. So, you know, the, the government's been trying to graduate more Navy SEALs, and they couldn't figure out. They wanted to, to figure out why certain people can make it through that process and other ones can't. And mm. typically, the people who make it through that process are not the biggest, strongest guys. They are not what you would expect. And so they ended up hiring all these researchers, therapists, um, all kinds of people that were going to research. What did this group of people have that these did not? And they really boiled it down to five things. And I'm going to try really hard to remember all five of them. There's a few that are the most important. The first thing that they figured out was that these individuals had the power of positive self-talk. So they would actually tell themselves... I'm going to kick ass at this. I'm going to figure, I'm going to get to the other side. I'm going to do I'm going to do great today. They would constantly tell themselves what was going to happen. The second piece was that they would visualize, literally visualize what they were going to do and see themselves at the other end of of the dock or whatever the swim thing they were trying to do. This is also very common in really successful athletes and musicians and artists that they'll they'll visualize themselves in on a stage performing amongst a million people and then that we, they believe, and I do too, that the body goes where the mind goes. So those are two things. The second, the third thing is that they set short, short-term goals. So rather than focusing on really long-term, like I'm going to graduate and be a Navy SEAL, they're like, I'm going to put my shoes on and then I'm going to make my bed, and then after I do that, I'm going to do this. And I think that's um, super important. And there's two others I can remember escaping me, but I can send them to you separately. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'll definitely. Those are the top three, though. I think that are really unique about that, that. That they just it really elicits when you think about being in total stress and you are trying to do probably the hardest thing that there is to do on the planet. That it proves that it's not how physically strong you are; it's how mentally strong you I'm are. Mentally tough. Great. Yeah, and that's a muscle I think that gets. It, people talk about it, but I also feel often that I'm sitting here thinking like, how do I improve this muscle? You know, how how do I in those moments when you're faced with a strong sense of emotion or things aren't going your way or you're getting waved, as I say, what in that moment do you do to get out of it? You know, and there's a million different things. And I think that that conversation is starting to really get some traction around kind of how to cultivate your own mental strength versus, you know, experience or having done certain things or resting on your laurels of certain successes. It's like you've got to constantly be evolving your mental strength. As a CEO, are you integrating that into how you're, uh, training your employees. We talk about this regularly, mm-hmm. and I think the unpredictable nature of our business is really a, a good workout for that. Yeah. I'm sure there's other industries good. too, but you know, like I said, we just don't know what we're waking up to every day, and um, that ability to have mental strength and navigate that stuff. I mean, you guys, we're not saving babies and you know sending people to the moon, but it is it is certainly a challenge, and there's a lot that comes I don't know. that have way. Have you ever had a bad pizza? It's pretty rough. Does piss people off? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that that's the grit that we were talking about with, with, with your pizza. It's kind of funny that we talked about how your pizza has grit, but that's really what we're talking about, right? My personal resilience and how do I bounce back and respond to shitty things when they happen to me because it's probably going to happen to me every day. That's right. And here's the thing. The, the shift is like nothing is happening to you. You are showing up here every day. I walk into this lab and I decide to show up and I am like literally like bring it on. Give it to me. And when you have that mindset of like I'm in, I'm in total choice right now. And I choose to sit here. I choose to take this job. I choose to be involved in this. And certainly things happen, but you have a choice in how you react to them. Yeah. And it's even the word, like, when you take responsibility for what you're doing and anything that you have, anything that you touch. And when you think about even the word, it's like response, 
able. I have the I have the ability to make a response. Not like, oh God, you know, this has happened to me. Like, what am I going to do? This person's a jerk, or you know, they don't get me, or they're not doing what I want them to do. It's all part of exactly where you're supposed to be, and if you can stay with that, you're in choice. That's the ultimate freedom. That's the truth. One of my favorite quotes is that in this life, you're either the hammer or the anvil. So you're either hitting stuff or you're getting hit. That's right. And I'm the hammer, Centauri. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> um, and there was another little thing I was going to throw at you too, but I totally forgot. No, it was uh, with great response. With great responsibility comes great power. And it's the opposite of with great power comes great responsibility. But if you have total resp- personal responsibility for things, then just like you're saying, it's like I know that that I am in control of as much of this as I really can be, and I'm and and I'm ready. That's right. And it puts you in a great position to be successful. So if you have a bad pizza, that's my fault. Yep. Let me be clear. Oh, I'll keep that in mind. We have your email address. So the next time you get a bad pizza, send it to. Oh, I will keep that in mind. Very <laughs> funny. All right, so. Um, again, we, we touched on the action piece a little bit, but the idea of the show is moving from awareness to action. So let's talk a little bit about advice in somebody who's thinking about becoming an operator or is a struggling operator. Um, in the restaurant space? Yes. yes. Okay. Or whatever you'd like to kind of touch on. I think that so much, so many popular business books these days talk about why and culture how does that fit into to upward projects? It's everything we do. I mean, people actually think that we're in the food business and we're not. We're in the people business. And the food is a byproduct of what the people make. But we have kept a sincere focus since day one on uh, the folks that execute it every day. Because like I said earlier, you can't, as good as it is the first time that you conceive it, it has to get remade by somebody. Mm-hmm. And that involves training programs and finding the right folks and attracting them to your company. And I mean, the list goes on and on. I also, this is my theory. Um, the world is a different place now in terms of, you know, back in the day when our parents were working, they wanted to check the box of, am I getting a paycheck and do I have, you know, some kind of plan on climbing this corporate ladder? And that was pretty much it. Same thing with marriages. It was like, am I married? Do we have a house? Are we having kids? You know, there are three or four boxes to check. Now there's 10 or 15 boxes to check. When someone makes the decision to come work for you, I think they're, they need to know those things. How much are you going to pay me? What's the job? Um, you know, is it fun? Whatever. But then there's, what does this company stand for? How am I going to be treated? Do I get to contribute? Am I being developed? And the list goes on and on. And I think that um, as employers, we have to understand what boxes do we check for people and then communicate that as we go out and hire them um, and look for those folks to join our team. Because if we know that they check our boxes and we check theirs. That's when you kind of really get some cool synergy and that they're really committed to doing what you're doing. And I think sometimes it's really challenging for us in the business that you just need kind of bodies to help and you miss that piece of it. And it's, I think, a big contributor to the turnover that our industry is experiencing as a whole. So as a uh, restaurateur, what what advice would you give on someone who's perhaps a you know, high school or college student? So is there any pedagogy to opening up a restaurant or is it just... Just do it. I would say, again, I think it's incredibly critical to go to work at a restaurant and do every position that you possibly can and then get into a leadership role as soon as you can. Um, and I think it's pretty simple. For me, it was always that I was I was committed to doing like 10% more than I thought I could every day and kind of going the extra mile and committing to my own growth and, and, and learning curve and knowing that that was a deposit I was making myself. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people were like, well, they're not paying me for that. 
and I got some other great advice from someone who really helped me. And he said, Lauren, when you work for someone who's doing what you want to do, you have to make yourself indispensable to them. And if you're going to sit around and wonder like, well, did they pay me for that 15 minutes? Am I being compensated? You're compensating yourself. I mean, you're getting really like this practice round of, of you're learning. Um, yeah, of experience. I think that's a great place to start is find, go find the person that you think is really nailing it and doing it the way that you would do it. And then either make yourself indispensable to them so that you can get in a leadership role and really learn the ins and outs of the business. And I think you have to look inwardly and think, do I really love this? Because you, it will chew you up and spit you out if you don't. I mean, I get up in the morning 95% of the time and I'm picking up the bat and I'm pumped to swing it. But I think that's because I love this business. And I would say that's a huge piece of it. Um, and then just building relationships. Everything that we do is built on relationships. And that's been a huge piece of our success is meeting people, asking questions, learning from what they learn, they've learned and how they know, even the things that you're asking me. Um, and there's so many resources now that you can get. I mean, you have a computer. You have the world at your fingertips. You can find out anything about anybody. You never used to be able to do that. I mean, look at LinkedIn. You have access to, like, thousands of leaders in the industry that you want to be in right at your fingertips. And just ask. Just reach out. People, if you say to them, if you, I guarantee if you send an email to someone and say, hey, I can really use your help, people have a very hard time saying no to that. Right. We I've, we just did a um, a podcast on mentorship, and it, it, even that informal piece of reaching out and saying, "Hey, Lauren, I I think I might want to start a business. Can I can we grab coffee?" I doubt right. you'd say no to that person. Yeah, and the, the only thing I would piggyback on that and say um, is the more specific you can get, especially at the outset of the relationship, ask because we read books on how to say no to things like that. Because huh. there's only so much hours. You only have day. so much bandwidth, right? right. And it's like yeah. if it's a meet, you know, I think for if you're gonna do it, say, "Hey, I really want to know about." whatever, like what the labor environment is. Can you give me, can I get on a call with you and you could just give me five minutes and I'm going to do that. Versus if it's like, will you mentor me? It's like, whoa, you know, slow down. You just can't, and then build the relationship, you know? And I think gratitude is a huge piece of that. So if someone is willing to get on the phone with you for five minutes and talk about the current labor market, awesome. And then figure out what could be in it for them too, that there's some reason. Cultivate it. Yeah. And then write them a thank you note. I'm a huge believer in handwritten thank you notes. And I think that goes a long way with people. Um, and I, I just think that's important. Agreed. Well, our time is drawn to a close here, um, but I really would like to get some practical advice from you talking about advice to somebody if they said, we're trying to build a great culture right from the beginning, kind of greatest hits, a handful of things you would say, here's where you can learn, here's how you would implement Thoughts on that, if it's books or if it's best practices that you've done that you do consistently? Um, a culture is not something that you can make. You can't write down, and this is what I want my culture to be. It's behaviors that are acted out every single day, um, all the time. So you can write whatever you want down for your mission statement and your core values, but you have to act on them every single day and every moment. And you know, why do I have a scooter? Because I park down at the church like everyone else does, because I'm not going to ask them to... to do that if I don't do it. Is right. it a pain in the butt? Sure. But, you know, it's kind of, we've made it fun now. I think acting on what you say you're going to do, and this is the tiniest moments and the big ones. Um, and then I also think leveraging the people that are on your team from the get-go, they're the ones that help build the culture. You don't get to say, like, guys, this is how our culture is going to be. Certainly you guide it and mold it and you're leading it. But I would tell you that all these folks have such a huge impact and imprint on, on not only how it started, but how it has continued to evolve. I think that... Um, you know, there's a lot of outside influences at play here too, so you can't ignore those either. And technology has certainly played a role in our company and how we communicate. 
I will tell you this, the intention has never changed in what we do, but how we do it has. When we were one restaurant and we had 25 or 30 people working with us, you know, we would come in and talk to them and then we'd high five them. And I'd say, hey, you know, you waited on my friend yesterday. I freaking said you were great. Well, I still want to do that, but I can't do that anymore. So now we have a platform that we call the Mosh. So I can get on there. I can search by name of any person by store and I can send them an award. My personal award is Badass Ninja. Nice. And it sends them an email and I say, hey... Centauri, uh, you waited on my friend last night, and he and a screenshot of the text message, and like you get that award, and it goes on your profile within our company. That's so, so cool. I don't know if that makes sense, but we, That's really we're great. doing the same thing we've always done. <clears throat> we're just doing it differently, and I think you have to embrace the fact that your culture is a living, breathing thing, and it's changing every day. And you can The biggest thing I would say is you have to act on it in the small moments and the big moments. Any book that you would say has been the most uh, impactful to you in the last couple of years that you've read, as it does. Pertains to your business. So many. Two, I will tell you that I think have probably impacted me the most. The first one is Carla Harris's book, Expect to Win. I think it gives very clear. Um, what I like about her book is that it, it tells you exactly what to do to get where you want to go um, and get how, how to behave in a way that's consistent and get people to think about you in a certain way. The second one is um, a book by Ryan Holiday called Ego is the Enemy. Um, and it's interesting. So he was the CMO of uh, American Apparel, and he saw the demise of that company really come from the lack of control of its founder, um, of his ego. But the book isn't about that. It's actually a really interesting collection of all these stories throughout history where people have either been in control of their ego or out of control of their ego. And if they were in control of the ego, how it just 10x'd their, their world in every facet. And if it was out of control, it would take something that was really special and wonderful um, and completely crush it. And it's, it's all kinds of, it's, it's military leaders, musicians, artists, business leaders. I mean, in, in politicians, it's really cool span of, um, this common vein and thread I think is, is really remarkable because it's tough. You know, when you go, when you start doing something, if you get some traction, like everyone wants to tell you how great you are, mm -hmm. you can easily start to believe that. And I think keeping this strong sense of self-awareness of, where you're misstepping when you do misstep because you will and acknowledging that and controlling that and really being a student of life is super critical. So I'd say those two. Excellent. Wonderful. As our time is drawing to a close for real this time. <laughs> we really Not shocking mine went over time. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to share? Um, you know, I think the last thing I would say is that risk taking is super important. And there's always a moment when, and this is a tiny little thing, like if uh, someone cuts you in line and you say something, or if you're gonna, if you're sitting in a meeting and you're telling yourself, like, oh, I have a really good idea, but I don't know if I should do it. Um, I think qualifying what's the worst case scenario in any situation and thinking to yourself, can you live with that on the other side? And, and the more you do this, the faster you're able to do it and take the risk. Because most of the time, I would think 90% of the time, you can probably live with the consequence if it doesn't go your way. But what happens is when you do take those risks, more often than not, the benefits will always outweigh that, the potential bad risk that you took. And um, that's been, for me, a really important cornerstone of, of in a lot of ways of taking the risk. Awesome. Lauren, thank you very much. Yeah. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. Feel free to share us on social media, like us on Facebook. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.